Well, I'm glad you're with us on this first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday of a new liturgical year. Today, we begin year C of the three-year lectionary cycle, A, B, and C. The easiest way to remember what year we're in is that they coincide with what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which describe Jesus' life from a similar point of view as contrasted with that of John, which is interspersed throughout all three years. We just finished Mark, and uh, we started Luke today. For those unfamiliar with the liturgical year and its history, there can be some confusion surrounding the meaning of Advent, especially if you were coming to church expecting Christmas joy and what you heard instead was get ready for judgment. When we read from John, I think John actually refers to the brood of vipers, so it's not always great, warm, fuzzy on um, the first Sunday of Advent. But if, if your only uh, real experience of Advent has been the occasional Advent wreath or calendar, then it is a, is a bit disorienting. And, disorienting. Speaking of which, vis-a-vis calendars, the good news is that Lego introduced an amazing Star Wars Advent calendar this year. The bad news is they are completely sold out. You just, you can't, you can't get one. Although I do have a sister who works for Legoland and I might be able to pull a few strings for you for a small fee. And now that I'm talking about Advent calendars, I have to say, a few weeks ago, a friend brought me, brought us, I'm saying me because Lauren is getting none of it, brought me the most perfect Advent calendar ever as a hostess gift for Lauren, I suppose. Um, It's an Advent cheese calendar. (laughs) Every day is a surprise gourmet cheese snack. So there's that. I'm not going to lie, rarely has there been an eagerer sense of anticipation for something just deep down in my soul. Cheese. Cheese. (laughs) The word Advent means presence or coming. It comes from the Latin word adventus, which in turn comes from a Greek word meaning the same thing. So we talk about Advent as preparing for Christ's coming birth at Christmas, and we adopt certain hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus as preparing us for Christ's birth. But as with so much of life, there is tension. Tension is being held in it because Advent is also a time when the church prepares herself for the second coming. When Jesus comes again in power and glory to righteously judge the world, the lectionary readings throughout Advent are focused on the preaching of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Old Testament prophets to prepare Israel for the birth of Messiah and to prepare us for his return. All four Sundays in Advent hold that same tension. The four outside candles on the Advent wreath represent hope, love, joy, and peace. 
But historically, they simultaneously represent the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. The center candle never changes. It's the Christ candle. Jesus is always the center. So in the same way that we're anticipating the celebration of his birth, we're waiting, preparing for him to come again. Advent is both anticipation and preparation. It's a very, very rich season. The predominant liturgical color is purple because, and this is a surprise to a lot of people, Advent is a penitential season. And you've seen already some changes, and we'll see some more changes in our liturgy that reflect that. For us, Advent is not Christmas, and Christmas is not one day. Our culture and a lot of the Western church begins its Christmas celebration basically as soon as Halloween is over. And by Christmas Day, we are exhausted and done. I was in Home Depot two weeks before Thanksgiving, and Dean Martin was singing Christmas carols. Not personally. I assume it was a recording. At least I'm hoping. But historically, Advent is four weeks of preparation followed by 12 days of celebration. Christmas begins on December 25th and continues through January 6th. Epiphany, or the revelation of Jesus to the Magi, 12 days, hence the song. We start singing Christmas carols in our worship beginning with the nine lessons and carols on Christmas Eve. And then we sing them pretty much nonstop for two weeks, right? And at the same time, our culture is pushing us to speed up and creating all kinds of healthy anxiety. Advent is bidding us to slow down, to take a breath, to fast, to give, to pray, to prepare. It's a a fixed point that keeps us on course with reality. Christ has come. (coughs) Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. That's why on the first Sunday of Advent in year C, we're drawn to Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. We read chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 13 today. And you can turn there in your Bible or on your device. I'm just going to go through that really quickly. The second coming is the most prominent theme in 1 Thessalonians. It is mentioned in every chapter. And from this book, I want to look at the chapter we read today to see if there may be something particularly helpful here for us in this season of preparation. First, just a word of background. In Acts 17... Paul, Silas, and Timothy preach in the Thessalonian synagogue over three Sabbaths, and a bunch of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles come to faith. Then rioters, instigated by Jewish opponents, dragged Paul's host, Jason, and some others before the city council and charged them with sedition against Caesar. 
forcing the three missionaries to leave the city long before they'd intended and to flee to Athens. And now Paul is anxious about the Thessalonians. In case you didn't know this, parents often lie awake at night anxious about their children, especially when they're out driving. It's a funny thing, though, uh, and this might not be true for, for everyone, but we literally stopped thinking those kinds of things when they were in college. Because what bad could ever happen at college? <sighs> but when they came home, we started doing it again. I said he was going to be home at 3 a.m. And it's now 3.10, <laughs> and I'm always up at that time for one reason or another. Um, but anxiety. This is how it's always been, and it's a normal part of human life. And until their parents themselves, children cannot realize how much their parents think about them, concerned for their welfare, turning over in their minds all the things that could happen to them. Sometimes Christian teachers, including Jesus and Paul, tell us not to be anxious about anything. And there is a kind of anxiety that fails to trust God, and that must be resisted. But when we love and bear responsibility for someone, it's right and natural to be anxious occasionally and to allow that anxiety appropriate expression. It's just human. That's how it was with Paul in Athens and, and with Silas and Timothy. His thoughts about the Thessalonians overwhelmed him until he had to send Timothy to find out how they were doing. One of the main reasons for Paul writing this letter is that Timothy had returned to them with good news. Yes, they're suffering intense persecution, but thanks be to God, they were clinging to their young faith. But despite that good news, there were some deep, deep concerns. Some members of their church had died since Paul's visit. We know as we're told later in this book, that at the second coming of Christ, the dead in Christ will rise and will be caught up along with the living to meet the Lord in the air. But because the Thessalonians hadn't been fully taught about what would happen to deceased Christians at Christ's return, remember, Paul, Silas, and Timothy got kicked out of town much earlier than they'd intended. Some Thessalonians thought that those who died would miss out on the second coming of Christ. And they'd plunged into a kind of hopeless grief for them. They also fretted in light of their own persecution and potential for death at any time about their own salvation in that day. From the content of this letter, it's clear that they needed reassurance both uh, about both of these things. Paul's basic fear being that they'd lost their, not that they'd lost their faith, rather, but that they may have been swept off track like a ship bone, blown off its course, headed for danger. The key word that brings what's at risk into focus is the word in verse, verses 2 and 5, often rendered faith, but also meaning faithfulness or loyalty or allegiance. Depends on its context as to how it's translated. And this is important because all of these meanings 
are appropriate here and coalesce here. What Paul is afraid of is compromise, of them losing their firm hold on the gospel, their unwavering loyalty to their newfound king. Paul cannot bear the thought that his, this work of the Holy Spirit in Thessalonica might be shipwrecked. So he sends Timothy not just to find out how they are, but to bolster their faith by his presence to assure them that the sufferings they're enduring don't mean that God is no longer reliable. They're precisely what one ought to expect if one is truly following a crucified Lord. And with all that as background, in the first paragraph, the last two paragraphs of this chapter disclose Paul's main theme here, a prayer for the Thessalonians. We discover that throughout the whole description of Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, his first arrival, his work among them, his anxiety after his departure, his sending Timothy, he's not just reminiscing or fretting, he's praying for them. And if we try to imagine a world without electronic communications, like, hey Siri, where's Lauren? Because I need, oh, I might get an answer to that in just a minute. <laughs> I'm going to have to shut that down, sorry. <laughs> when I typed that, I didn't think about the fact that when I said it, it could create problems. Or even with reliable snail mail, we can imagine the huge relief that Paul felt when Timothy came back with news about this church. Paul calls... Timothy's report, good news, evangelizo in Greek, the very same word that means preaching the gospel. He's delighted to hear not only about their faithfulness, but also about their love. This love, and Paul's focus here is their love for him and his colleagues, but in the next chapter, he'll focus on their love for each other. This sincere love was truly one of the astonishing identifiers of the early church and ought to still be today. Imagine within that harsh and violent pagan world, a totally new community where people from different social, cultural, and ra racial backgrounds treated each other with the love appropriate within a healthy family. This was a sign of God's dramatic work, starting something new, the likes of which the world had never seen. It was evidence that in Jesus and by his spirit, the living God was at work. No wonder Paul, in the midst of his own difficulties and the opposition that met him in Athens, was still so incredibly joyful. And so he returns to the central task and joy of his life, thanking and praising God for all that he has done and is doing, and praying for a still closer bond with his children in the Lord, Paul's life, with all its day and night hard physical work, which we hear about in the previous chapter, was also a matter of night and day prayer, realizing that he could never thank God enough for what he had done and was doing, and that through prayer, God would do yet greater things. In particular, Paul knows that there's yet more for the Thessalonians to endure. More trials of their faith are on the way. They've met the first. Will they meet the next? And so he prays 
Not only that he'll be able to see them again, but also that when he does, he'll be able to supply them everything needed to make their faith, faith in all of its senses, belief, trust, faithfulness, and loyalty, that will be able to make their faith grow yet stronger and stand firm for the future. It's a really beautiful and loving pastoral moment. So personally, I find it striking and exemplary but most of us aren't pastors. What can we learn from this short but deep prayer of Paul's for our everyday lives, especially in this season of Advent? How amazing it would be in this season, set aside for prayer, to, to grow in prayer beyond a few short childish sentences or the SOS kinds of prayers we pray when we're in trouble and to become real grown-up praying people. So how do we get there? I want to make just three observations about Paul's prayer here and then a challenge to you. And I hope they'll be instructive. And by the way, these are very personally convicting. First, the word Paul uses to describe his prayer in this chapter isn't just kind of shooting up some random requests. It's a rare and complex one in the New Testament meaning more or less the expression of a profound longing for something beyond what can now be imagined. There's a kind of audaciousness in it, a boldness, an invitation to express the deepest longing of our souls to God. Could you describe your own prayers in that way? I'm not sure I can. And if not, what is it about our vision of God and the gospel that's allowing us to be satisfied with less than that? Secondly, it's prayer that is confidently grounded in the character of God himself, the God we come to know, as we talked about last week, through Jesus Christ. And we come to know him as Father. It's enthusiastic prayer in the etymological, not the emotional sense. Notice I didn't say excitement. Enthusiasm and excitement are different things. Excitement is about circumstance and comes from within us. Enthusiasm is literally a contraction of two Greek words, theos, that means in God and comes from confidence in his character. In that sense, even biblical lament, some of the saddest prayers ever prayed, are enthusiastic. Because while it recognizes circumstance, it is rooted in God's character. Twice in this short prayer, Paul draws together God the Father and Jesus the Lord. N.T. Wright says this was one of Paul's regular ways of thinking about and addressing God, God and Jesus together. But it wasn't just a matter of getting the labels right. Prayer that is grounded in the character of God as revealed in Jesus is prayer that's learning to depend on the goodness, the generosity, the sovereign love of this God as they're unveiled in Jesus' sacrificial death 
and triumphant resurrection. If God is truly God, and if Jesus is truly the Lord of the world, as we explored last week in Colossians 2, we won't pray like people who are just hoping that this God and this Lord will somehow be able to pull off a slick move in the end, despite the power of this present darkness. We pray enthusiastically to the one who is supreme over all and who can do far more than we can ask or think or imagine. Is that how you pray? The answer for me is not always. Okay, so audacious, enthusiastic. Finally, this kind of prayer is fixed on a sure and certain future. It knows confidently that God will one day bring heaven and earth together in a new way with the personal presence of Jesus as the central feature of this new world. Jesus will come again and all his holy ones with him. To quote one of the great Old Testament statements of hope we read today in in, uh, Zechariah 14.5, a quote that Paul takes as referring to the final appearing of Jesus and all those who belong to him. The Lord's Prayer itself has a strong future dimension when we pray for daily bread, for forgiveness, and for deliverance from evil. We do so only after having already prayed for God's already and not yet kingdom to come. Thus, Paul's prayer here is far more than just a smattering of miscellaneous requests. It's audacious. It expresses a profound longing for something beyond what can now be imagined. When was the last time you prayed for something like that? It's enthusiastic in that it is rooted not in his strength, but in the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And finally, it is firmly fixed. Its confidence is based on God's sure and certain future that knows despite what we may see around us today, his kingdom will come. Audacious, enthusiastic, and firmly fixed. This kind of prayer does not come to most of us naturally. It takes practice, and practice takes patience, and patience takes time. That's one of the reasons that I think Advent's call to slow down is a gift to us. May we learn during Advent to pray in this way. And here's the challenge. I am going to ask you this Advent to fast and pray with me on Fridays. I'm going to call it Fast Fridays. Just one meal. I'm not, you know, I'm going to ask you to go 14 days or anything like that. Just a meal. Just give up a meal and pray. I'll let you know uh, in our Friday morning email. I'll remind you of it. For me, it's lunch. could be whatever meal you decide, but I'd love for you to join me in praying, and maybe we'll get good at this. Maybe we'll start praying in this way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.